Welcome back to CME Anytime, a podcast series presented by the Center for Medical Education. This week's episode is from our semi-annual pharmacology course and is part one of Cardiovascular Medications, presented by Michael Gooch. Enjoy. So let's talk about cardiovascular drugs, and we've actually broke this into two sections. This is a lot of stuff. We'll do one this morning and the other one this afternoon. So during this, we're going to talk about some of the classes that we use to manage hypertensive emergencies. We have lots of options out there. And then talk about vasoactive support as well. And the chronic medication lecture, we'll hit this some a little bit more. We'll talk about some of the chronic drugs that people are on for blood pressure control. Just a quick review of some terminology stuff, just kind of taking us back to some of that basic things we think about. The inotropes have to do with the contractility. Chronotropes have to do with the heart rate. Dromotrope has to do with the conduction ability. So some of these things we talk about may have positive all three or positive just one, and some may have negative effects as well. Preload, what's coming into the right atrium. Sometimes we can talk about that with CVP or looking at jugular venous distension, but that's our venous system for the most part. And then afterload, what we have to overcome to get the blood out of the left ventricle. So we talk about blood pressure control. This deals a lot with our sympathetic response, has a lot to do with the autonomic nervous system. And think about a lot of the different medications that we use and how those interact. Epi, norepi, or natural catecholamines have multiple effects on different parts of the body. And usually that's health important for controlling every perfusion. But when we give some of these medications, we also see some of these other effects. Where we talk about epinephrine has lots of effects on the cardiovascular system, but it also affects other things, the lungs, even the liver, where alpha agonists may affect the eyes or may affect some other vessels. So different things that affect all those. And we'll talk about some of these and how some of them have beneficial effects, but also at some of their side effects that make some problems like most of those vasoconstrictors we give, are going to help improve perfusion, but they may reduce perfusion to other areas, like the gut, because the gut's not considered to be vital. Or it may reduce renal perfusion as we're trying to improve systemic perfusion. So lots of receptors out there. Typically, we think about alpha-1 receptors. We usually think about smooth muscle. But this also involves the eyes, and that's also that pillow response, those goosebumps we get. That's all part of that flight or flight response. Alpha-2 involves some of our nerve endings, but also smooth muscle and platelets. Beta-1, we think about beta-1 being heart, but it also has some effects on the kidneys. The glycerin-mcleary cells there in the kidneys play a role with renin response. So all of our agents that affect beta, like beta blockers, are going to have some effect on the outflow of renin, which may play a role in blood pressure control as well. Beta-2, we usually think about lungs, but we also see beta receptors in other places. The liver, they play a role with glycogenolysis. We see it also in some of our blood vessels, and the heart as well, the skeletal muscles. So anytime we stimulate or block those, we may see some of those gold effects, but we also may see some of those systemic side effects as well. So atropine is our primary drug in adults for treating bradycardia. It is a vagolytic. It's going to suppress the parasympathetic system, which allows the sympathetic system to be more active. So typically in treating that patient who has symptomatic bradycardia with atropine in the adult, it's going to hopefully improve heart rate. It's going to give us more sympathetic effect, 
which hopefully will improve systemic perfusion. What group of patients will atropine not work on if they're having symptomatic bradycardia? There's a patient population out there that you can give atropine all day long. It will not improve the bradycardia. Your heart transplants. During a heart transplant, they sever the vagus nerve. If there's no vagus nerve to suppress, there's no ability to have a vagolytic effect. Atropine will not work in your heart transplanted patients. We've got to use something else. Also, sometimes in our really bad diabetics, they can get those peripheral neuropathies. They also can get central neuropathies. And sometimes they may denervate their vagus nerve due to their diabetes, and it may not be as effective in those patients as well. Just like when they get gastroparesis, that's a central neuropathy. They also can affect their vagus nerve and cause this effect as well. Side effects listed for you, obviously, it may cause some palpitations and tachycardia. Probably our biggest concern is going to be if this patient's having an MI, atropine obviously may increase cardiac workload and therefore increase oxygen consumption. But atropine tends to be our drug of choice for those patients. It is our drug of choice in organophosphates as well. We'll come back to this afternoon. But typically, the adult patient, it's 0.5 milligrams reassessed. We can repeat that to a max dose of 3 milligrams. Typically, if they've had 0.5 and they've had 0.5 again and it's not working, I probably need to consider another agent, but you definitely can give up to 3 milligrams and look for those patients. In the pediatric patient, it's 0.02 milligrams per kilogram, and this is usually not our first line in the pediatric patient with bradycardia. We might consider atropine in those patients if we're concerned about a vagal event. So they were putting down an NG tube, and this kid bradycardia, that might be a reason I use atropine. My thought would be pull out the NG tube, the vagal effect goes away. But atropine for vagal events. Otherwise, we'll use epinephrine in kids. So we're evaluating a 56-year-old male who developed left side weakness and slurred speech one hour ago. Comes in, heart rate's 100, vital signs, blood pressure's 192 over 100. There's his cardiac rhythm. What are we concerned about here? I'm worried about some type of probably stroke. He's pretty hypertensive. So how do you want to control his blood pressure if we choose to control his blood pressure? What are some agents we could use? We could use a vasodilator like nitro or nitroprusside. What else? We could use a beta blocker like metoprolol. We might use a calcium channel blocker. So there are several options. We'll talk about those and talk about the benefits and the risk of those different types of agents. So we're calling to see a 50-year-old female with ripping back and chest pain. Now what are you worried about? I'm worried about a dissection. And those patients we may treat with similar agents, but definitely here, there's a little bit more responsibility there in what agent I choose. Because if I drop the blood pressure but make her get tachycardic, that's probably not a good idea in a dissection. So we'll talk about what drugs have benefits in those scenarios also. So this is this lady's chest x-ray. She's having that ripping or tearing back pain, and sure enough, this confirms, yeah, I'm definitely worried about something going on around your mediastinum. Huge. So when we're talking about hypertension, my big concern is, is end organ perfusion. That person who has hypertension, if they're having clear evidence of end organ injury, that person needs emergent reduction in their blood pressure. 
but there's no evidence of end organ injury. They're walking around 180 over 100, and they have no complaints. That's not the person I want to get aggressive with. They've probably been that way for weeks or months. But if they're having a stroke, or they're having cardiac symptoms, or significant renal impairment, or vision problems because they've gotten retinopathies, those are the patients we probably need to be a little bit more aggressive with because they actually might be having a hypertensive emergency. So there's lots of drug options out there. And this is just one table that kind of gives you an idea of the different options, their mechanisms, and how quickly they're going to work, what the duration is going to be, the dosing, and the adverse effects. And we'll go to some of these in a little bit more detail, but definitely just kind of give you that reference of why I might choose a nitro drug versus a beta blocker versus a calcium channel blocker. So Esmolol, Brevablock, very short-acting beta blocker. Definitely is one of our drugs of choice for things like emergent dissections, maybe even for significant arrhythmias, because it's going to have negative chronotropic, inotropic, and dromotropic effect. Since it affects the juxtaglomerular cells in the kidneys, it's also going to have that renin effect and reduce the outflow of renin, which helps with hypertension as well. So it's going to give a significant drop in blood pressure and heart rate. It's one of our drugs of choice for a dissecting aortic aneurysm. Definitely have to use it cautiously in anybody that has significant pulmonary disease, because if it's going to get beta-1, it's probably going to have some beta-2 effects. And definitely with large doses, that might cause bronchial spasms. Some people are a little bit more sensitive than others. A lot of these tend to be beta-1 selective, but they still have some beta-2 properties. So usually a rapid dose, this is a very short-acting drug, so it requires that repeated infusion, but tends to have an onset less than a minute, duration 10 to 20 minutes. So that person, I want to get rapid reduction in their heart rate and blood pressure. This is a good goal for a dissection, but I've got to hang that drip pretty quickly to maintain that continual control. Otherwise, they're going to go back to being hypertensive probably within 10 minutes or so. It's nice, short-acting. Nice thing is I can turn it off and the effect goes away pretty fast. Labetalol, probably one of my favorites. Labetalol being a beta blocker, but also it has alpha blocking properties. Probably about a seven to one ratio. So mostly beta with a little bit of alpha. So I get that beta blockade, but also get some vasodilation with it. Has those negative chronotropic, inotropic effects. It's a great drug for hypertensive emergencies. We use it some with a pheochrobin cytoma. Don't see those very often. But great for a dissection. This is going to give us both heart rate and blood pressure control. And a lot will say it's first line for a dissection. Also a good option for eclampsia. This is going to give us that hypertensive reduction. Since it is a non-selected beta blocker, we have to worry about effects on the lungs as well. Definitely patients with high-level heart blocks, probably not my first choice to use these on. As I mentioned, the pulmonary disease, it is a pregnancy category C, but looking at repeated use, it's pretty safe. The nice thing about labetalol is I can give you a bolus and then hang a drip, but I don't want to hang the drip right now. i got a couple of minutes. It's a pretty longer acting compared to esmolol. We start that infusion, now can I titrate you pretty easily. You may need one or two milligrams an hour. You may need several milligrams an hour. Well, the nice thing about labetalol is it gives us both the alpha and the beta effects. Mostly beta, but a little bit of alpha. But it's non-selected beta, so definitely we have to worry about pulmonary concerns.
So looking at some of these just beta blockers versus these combined agents, just to kind of compare them. Esmol, rapid onset, but a little bit a little slower. You're going to both get some probably some reduced heart rate effects. May definitely influence the myocardial oxygen demand. Similar contraindications there. You know, if you're already bradycardic, probably not my best line, but I got to treat your hypertension, so I may go to something else. So our calcium channel blockers, like nicardipine. We talk about calcium channel blockers, we just talk about them in one of two categories, either the dihydroperidines or the non-dihydroperidines. Nicardipine is one of my dihydroperidines. It primarily causes vasodilation. It's a smooth muscle relaxer through blockage of the calcium channels. It has very little effect on the heart. So it's great for blood pressure reduction, but doesn't really do much about the heart itself. One of our lines of choice for emergency hypertensive things. We use this a lot with neuro problems because calcium channel blockers are associated with preventing or treating vasospasms. And that definitely may be very beneficial in the hemorrhagic stroke or the aneurysmal bleed. This is going to help with those vasospasms. Some of the other agents probably want to use it cautiously if I have high-level heart blocks. Since so this is a dihydroperidine, less risk of causing bradycardias, but definitely it may have some. Administration used by infusion, onset pretty quickly, duration four to six hours. The downside to any drug that causes vasodilation is if we drop cardiac output, what's your body's response to a drop in output? Autonomic response gets activated, sympathetic activates, and we increase the outflow of epi and norepi. So reflex tachycardia is a concern with any drug that's going to cause vasodilation. Calcium channel blockers have that risk. Direct vasodilators have that risk. So then we have to consider that if we start seeing their heart rate go up, that means their adrenal glands are working. They're doing their job. But that could be detrimental in certain things like a dissection. So then we may have to add in a beta blocker anyway to control that reflex tachycardia. Nitroglycerin. We think about typically with our cardiac patients, especially with coronary perfusion, nitroglycerin is rapidly metabolized at the cellular level to release nitric oxide, which gives us great venodilation. At higher doses, it's going to give us some arterial vasodilation as well. It's primarily a preload reducer, but at higher doses will also affect afterload. It also improves coronary perfusion. So definitely great for your coronary patient. Our biggest concern is that they're obviously they're already hypotensive. I probably shouldn't use it. If they've used a phosphodiesterase inhibitor within the last 24 to 48 hours, depending on the drug, we probably should avoid this. So then 24 hours. Cialis, Levitra, those longer-acting agents, probably 48 hours. They're both going to work very similarly. They're both going to cause significant vasodilation. And there's several good, great case reports or sad case reports of people on a PDE inhibitor who got nitro, had a major vasodilatory event, and died. So definitely something we should ask both females and males. Some females may use it off-label. Definitely it's available on the Internet and people order from other countries. So always ask that question. If you have a high suspicion they're using one, let them know the risk of mixing these two drugs because you got to ask.
So typically we started out as an infusion, but we also had the ability to give sublingual. Thousands of people use sublingual nitro every day at home. Probably in the hospital setting, I have a lot better control with an infusion versus a sublingual, especially if I'm worried about dropping their blood pressure. So typically, I want to try that first. One of the things we have to worry about with giving nitroglycerin is it can lead to methemoglobinemia. In some patients, if they develop methemoglobinemia, like you see here in this picture, your treatment is methylene blue. We can sometimes see methemoglobinemia with nitro, with some of our local anesthetics like our cetocanes and some other agents. But definitely with coronary patients, if I need venodilation, nitroglycerin is a great drug. One of these are first-line drugs now also for acute pulmonary edema, acute decomposite heart failure, is for preload reduction. Nitro is a great agent for that. So how many people reach for the nitro with a patient with acute pulmonary edema? How do you give it? So there's been several things that looked at. Maybe that nitro should be our first line, not diuretics, because not all of our heart failure people are volume overloaded. But maybe we should think about dilation versus diuresis. So this was one um, protocol it looked at, and they used nitro for the rapid reduction. They also made sure you avoided this in aortic stenosis. Patients with severe aortic stenosis need that extra volume to open that valve and get their blood out. And definitely if we give them nitro, that usually reduces the preload and reduces their ejection fraction. But probably for some patients, giving a large dose of nitrates over two to five minutes and then slowing it down works very effectively. So you think about a sublingual nitro. How much nitroglycerin is that? 0.4 or 400 micrograms. So if we start this person out at 100 mics a minute for four minutes, or 200 mics a minute for two minutes, or 100 mics for five minutes, they're getting roughly the same dose as a sublingual. But one of the nice things is, with a high-dose infusion, if they drop their pressure, I can turn that off real quickly. And they only got 100 mics or 200 mics versus that sublingual. They got the full 400 micrograms. So in some patients, it may be very beneficial to give these large doses of nitro over a couple of minutes and then decrease it to decrease preload, which decreases cardiac workload and may help improve cardiac function and also reduce pulmonary edema. So nitroprusside. Nitroprusside, also a great venodilator at high doses, but it's primarily an arterial vasodilator. So at normal doses, it gives us afterload reduction. At higher doses, it gives us veno also. Nitroprusside is metabolized also to nitric oxide, but also cyanide. So we have to worry about cyanide toxicity in people on prolonged infusions of nitroprusside or if they have renal disease. Usually we start out 0.5 to 10 mics per kilo per minute, titrate up to effect. Ideally, if we're having to give nitroprusside, this patient needs an arterial line. They need really close monitoring of their blood pressure because slight changes in the dose can definitely change perfusion dramatically. That non-invasive pressure is good to start with. But I really want invasive monitoring in this patient for doing nitroprusside. Similar to all the other concerns, all these vasodilators have that risk for reflex tachycardia. Nitro, nitroprusside, calcium channel blockers, so it may be needed to go ahead and add in a little beta blockade to prevent that tachycardia. Because if I'm having a significant aortic dissection, I probably don't want my heart rate 120. Probably not a good idea. 
So our dihydropyridines, I mentioned a little bit earlier, versus our vasodilators, just to kind of give you some comparison of these agents, where it's nicardipine or nitroprusside or nitroglycerin, just kind of give you some idea of the benefits and the cons of some of these agents versus another. Some are really good at rapid onset, some may be more likely to cause some tachyarrhythmias than other agents do, but just kind of looking at the benefits and the risk of one agent versus another. Sometimes it may just be our personal preference, because I know I've used it, I like it, but anticipate there's always a potential side effect for any medication we give, whether that's going to be the tachycardia, or maybe it's the risk for cyanide toxicity with nitroprusside after about 40 hours of administration. So nitroprusside versus nitro. One of the things we also have to worry about with nitroglycerin, not necessarily on RM, but inpatient world, is that nitroglycerin has the risk for tachyphylaxis. Tachyphylaxis is when they have a rapid developer tolerance. Most drugs take months or years to develop tolerance. But one of the things we see with nitroglycerin is this risk for tachyphylaxis. That after a couple of days or a week or two of treatment, they may develop this rapid tolerance. That's why most people that are on nitroglycerin patches, they wear them for 12 hours, they take them off for 12 hours. When the benefits of tachyphylaxis is you remove the drug, the, the tachyphylaxis goes away pretty quickly. But definitely we're dealing with that patient who's taking nitroglycerin every day, that patient may have a significant tolerance and may not get as good of a benefit if we're using nitroglycerin there in the ED. So just keep that in mind. The headache's a big problem because of the vasodilation. We dilate all those cranial vessels, they're going to have pain with that. The nitroprusside, the big concern is going to be, I really need invasive monitoring if they're going to be on it for a while. And after 48 hours of therapy or if they have renal disease, I have to worry about cyanide toxicity. So this is kind of concludes that case we went through earlier. The lady that came in, severe ripping or tearing pain, that's her CTA. That's pretty impressive. Unfortunately, this lady was not operative. She uh, chose to go with medical therapy and then died a couple of days later. She did dissect and a rupture. But with these patients, several options available for treating this emergency of hypertension, especially with a dissection. Think about your risk and benefits. Beta blockers are great because they usually give us heart rate and blood pressure reduction. Vasodilators, good, but we have to worry about the reflex tachycardia that sometimes happens. That's when we may sometimes go ahead and just add in a beta blocker with a calcium channel blocker or a vasodilator. So our diuretics. Furosemide is usually our main when we talk about ideally should be based one milligram per kilogram. It's going to improve several things. It's going to help reduce preload. It helps get rid of some of our electrolytes. It's going to be great at getting rid of sodium, potassium, calcium. So we'll sometimes use it for treating hyperkalemia or hypercalcemia. We may use it in conjunction with other agents for treating volume overload states. But usually it's not our first-line agent like it used to be. We hit them with 100, 200 milligrams of furosemide when they come in with exacerbated heart failure. But not all of them are volume overloaded. So it's a good idea to keep in mind that we need to look at volume status, not just their cardiac status. So looking at some patients, maybe a fluid, I'm sorry, maybe an infusion of furosemide may be better than just giving a bolus. And this compared looking at mortality with giving a bolus versus an infusion, and they found that using that infusion of furosemide for treating volume overload or decompensate heart failure actually was better tolerated than just the rapid in injection. For most of these drugs, giving the infusion has 
a less rapid effect, so you don't have all these significant fluid shifts and electrolyte effects that we'll sometimes see with that just IV push. So maybe in some patients that we're given this to, we can consider more than just an injection and actually consider an infusion. So we're evaluating this 30-year-old female who comes in, looks like she's got septic shock. Her vital signs 108, heart rate's 80 over 48. We gave her two liters of LR. Her lactate's 8. What else are we going to do? We're going to give what? More fluids we can think about if she's not reached her 30 per kilo. And that probably should be 30 per kilo of ideal body weight, not actual. What vasopressor we're going to go with? We want to go with norepi. Epi? Dopamine? You don't care? This is the interactive part. Come on. So we'll come back to that, but probably norepinephrine. A six-year-old female who's post-arrest from a drowning event. Heart rate's 118, blood pressure 74 over 40. She had CPR for 10 minutes. We got ROSC. She had two doses of IV epi. If she needs a vasopressor agent, what's your probably choice for her? Probably going to go with epinephrine. We like epi in kids. Kids respond very well to epinephrine. So different types of shocks out there. We talk about shock. Shock usually affects one of the three Ps. Is it a preload problem, such as hypovolemia, they've lost volume? Is it a pump problem, such as cardiogenic or obstructive? They have a pump problem. Or is it a pipe problem, like distributive shock? If they have a preload issue, that's easy. We fix the, replace the preload. If it's a pump issue, then we've got to make the pump work better. If it's a pipe issue, we can give volume, but we often have to do something about the pipes and make them smaller. And that kind of gives us an idea of what agents we may need to use. Because typically with a hypovolemic shock, we don't need vasopressors. We need volume. But if it's cardiogenic, they need an inotrope or carnotrope. If it's vasodilatory, like distributive, they probably need to get some of a vasoactive substance. So we have to look at the type of shock and how we're going to treat those. So dopamine is one of our classic old agents. One of the nice things about dopamine, it has multiple effects depending on the dose. Dopamine at low levels might have that dopaminergic effect that we've heard about, talked about, debated. It might improve perfusion to some areas. But what I'm really looking for is that beta effect. So dopamine has varying effects. At 2 to 10 mics, we pretty much get beta effect. So I'm going to increase contractility. I'm going to increase the heart rate, which is great if the patient's bradycardic. It's one of our second-line agents for treating symptomatic bradycardia. If atropine doesn't work, I don't want to pace them, I can go to dopamine. But one of the biggest problems I see with dopamine is it causes tachycardia. And most of these people don't need a heart rate of 140. They need a heart rate of 100. Once you get above 120 or so, the benefit's not going to be beneficial because you're getting so much tachycardia, you're reducing ventricular filling time. So 2 to 10 usually gives me the beta effect. But as I get higher than that, I start hitting 10, 15, 20 mics per kilo a minute, I keep my beta effect, but I start adding in alpha effects. So now I start getting some vasodilation. So if your patient has a vasodilatory shock with bradycardia, dopamine is a great drug. But if it's purely vasodilatory, 
By the time you get up to above 10 mics to get your vasocompressive effects, you're also getting your tachycardia concerns. And that may not be beneficial in a lot of patients. Any of these vasodilators or vasoconstrictors are going to have the risk for causing ischemia because I'm decreasing blood supply to those non-essential areas. The gut's a big one, but peripheral vessels. So then we have some drugs that are purely going to help us focus on heart. So we look at dibutamine, and even can compare that back to dopamine. So dibutamine is pure beta. When we give dibutamine, it's going to give us that inotropic effect with some chronotropic abilities, where dopamine gives us those plus vasopressor support. And not every patient needs that. So we have to look to decide, what does this patient need? Do they need mostly beta, or do they need mostly alpha, or do they need a combination of both, and may help us pick which drug we like. Most people like dopamine because it's already mixed in the crash car. They pulled out, they can have a vasopressor going in a minute or two. Or most everything else we have to mix, but dopamine may not always be the best choice. Because dopamine, we don't get a lot of inotropic, but dibutamine you do. But with dopamine, I get a lot of vasoactive support, but with dodabutamine, I really don't. So what am I treating? Am I treating vasodilatory or am I treating cardiogenic? Think about which dope I use. So dibutamine, strong beta-1. It's going to give me that contractility that I need for cardiogenic shock. It does give me some beta-2 effects. That's why sometimes when we start people out on dibutamine, you may have an initial drop in the blood pressure because of that vasodilation. But as you improve their contractility, it compensates and their blood pressure improves. If I'm treating cardiogenic shock, dibutamine is a great drug. It's going to help support the heart, but doesn't do a lot of other effects. But since it's a beta-1, it can also cause the tachyarrhythmias. It can cause angina because it is increasing the heart workload, which could increase oxygen consumption. Probably less than we see with atropine, though. So definitely if I've had that symptomatic person with poor cardiac output and they're in cardiogenic shock, dibutamine is probably a better drug than dopamine because it's going to probably cause less of an O2 demand. But in cardiogenic shock, dibutamine is a good drug. I can titrate up to effect. Usually the onset within two minutes, I start seeing a benefit. And if I maximize them, usually within 10 to 15 minutes. Downside, after about three days, they're going to start getting some tolerance. they got to look at other options. So norepinephrine, levofed. Had the old adage of leave them dead years ago. And probably because we waited the very end to start it. Probably if we had started norepi sooner... They wouldn't all have died. You know, leave a fed, leave them dead. Yeah, because we waited we're 15, 30 minutes into a code. Let's try the norepi. So norepi is, gives us both alpha and beta benefit. It's primarily an alpha agonist, but has some beta-1 effects. It's usually our first-line drug for septic shock. It's going to give us primarily that vasopressive support, but a little cardiac support. The big concern with it, like everything else, tissue ischemia, especially if it infiltrates. And one of the debates that often goes by is, can we give these drugs through a peripheral line? Absolutely, as long as it's a good line. Now, granted, I probably don't want to push epi or norepi drips through a 22 in the top of the hand. But I've got a nice 
line right here in the forearm or I've got a great AC that draws back well, it's probably safe as long as I do sight checks every hour. I'm not waiting eight hours to check it. But norepi has a lot of complications if it extravasates. If that IV infiltrates and it's not found and treated, then definitely have to worry about with any vasopressor, whether it's dopamine or norepi or epi. So multiple-city randomized control trial, almost 1,700 patients looking at shock, and they randomized them looking at dopamine versus norepi. They actually found there was no difference in 28-day mortality, but they did find that those that got dopamine had more arrhythmetic problems because dopamine has a significant more beta effect. So those that got the dopamine had more tachyarrhythmia problems. Subgroup did show a higher mortality in those with cardiogenic shot with dopamine because dopamine has a much stronger beta-1 effect. If I need beta-1, dopamine's a good option. If I don't need beta-1, I'm really looking for just vasopressive support, then dopamine's probably not my drug of choice. It's probably going to be norepi. And that's one of most of the guidelines recommend. Norepi is our drug of choice for septic shock. Because most of those people don't need cardiac support, they just need vasopressive support. Again, look at your patient. What type of shock do they have? What do they affect they need? If they need multi-effect, they need some alpha and some beta, then dopamine may be a good option. But if they really just need the alpha, then it may be more of a norepi patient. Depends on the shock. Depends on the patient. So phenylephrine, neosinephrine is pure alpha. If I need just vasopressor support and nothing else, that would be my phenylephrine. We'll sometimes use it for treating GI bleeds, just to treat the GI bleed because it does decrease the gastric blood supply pretty significantly. We may not use it for vasopressive activity, but just to reduce the GI blood supply and those varicel bleeds. It definitely has become very popular in the last couple of years talking about push-dose pressors that people with vasodilatory shocks that are not responding to other things or those patients that were worried about hemodynamic compromise, especially, say, prior to intubation, that doing a push dose of a presser like phenylephrine, giving them 50, 100 micrograms, may help prevent that post-intubation decompensation that we'll sometimes see. Due to its alpha effects, it can sometimes cause bradycardia initially, but then once the body responds to it, that goes away. But it has to do probably with that blockade of alpha effects both centrally and some of it peripherally, and it's going to give us that risk. But usually after that, we get support and the hemodynamically improves. But definitely in some patients, we may use those push-dose pressors, and usually phenylephrine is our first line. But if I have a patient with a spinal shock, they've got neurogenic shock, then this is a good option for those. Vasopressin. Years ago, this came into the American Heart Guidelines, and that's kind of gone out. But vasopressin sometimes is still used as a vasodial vasopressor in some of our ICUs. Vasopressin is different than all the other drugs. All the drugs we talked about affect beta or alpha, and this works totally differently. This is going to be exogenous antidiuretic hormone. It's going to affect those vasopressin receptors there in the renal tubules, but also in other parts of the body, like the smooth muscles. And this definitely may be an option in some patients that have refractory vasodilatory shock. We're treating them for sepsis or neurogenic shock, 
and we're not getting good control, we may try some vasopressin. A couple of years ago, American Heart recognized this as an alternative to epinephrine. Probably looking at the studies, it was no more beneficial, and so it was removed. But definitely in some people that are not responding, that they're refractory, it may be an option for treating cardiac arrest as well. Usually not our first to go to in the ED, but definitely if they're not responding to certain things, then vasopressin might be an option. Other things to consider is this person who's not responding to vasopressors or your inotropes or your chronotropes, do they have a history of Addison's or do they have adrenal insufficiency? Because think about what adrenal cortisol does for us. If that person's in shock and they have a history of Addison's or they have just adrenal insult, your vasopressors may not work well until you replace their cortisol. So it might be beneficial in patients who are not responding to therapy to consider a stress dose of steroids and see what happens. A patient I took care of several months ago was a, a fall, cervical spine injury, had neurogenic shock, and then come to find out he also had Addison's. And now he needs more stress hormone than he was taking by day at mouth. And phenylephrine was helping, but we gave him 300 of cortisol. And amazingly, he responded so much better to drugs after that. So just keep that in mind. If your patient's not responding, is there adrenaline suppression there? Or what if they're on a beta blocker and now you're giving them a beta active drug? That may not work as well as either. That person is taking a large dose of beta blockers every day for their hypertension and now you put them on epi or norepi or any of these beta agonists, those may not work as well. We may have to consider reversal of their beta blockade to allow these drugs to be more effective. So epi definitely is a very important vasopressor. The nice thing about epi, it has equal alpha and beta properties. So it's a great drug for multiple patients. If I need inotropic effect, it's great for that. If I need chronotropic effect, it's great for that. If I need vasopressor support, it's great for that. So it may be an agent we use a lot in pediatrics, but also may use in the patient who has symptomatic bradycardia. If I've tried atropine and that didn't work, one of the options is epinephrine infusion. An epi infusion is going to give us that inotropic and chronotropic effect. It's great for bronchial dilations, we talked about earlier. It is my first-line agent in anaphylaxis. If that patient is dying of anaphylaxis, they need an injection of epinephrine. It's going to support the heart, it's going to support their lungs, it's going to support their blood vessels, and it also stabilizes mast cells. If we stabilize the mast cells, we reduce the release of that histamine. So currently, American Heart recommends that all pulses cardiac arrest patients receive epinephrine. Recommendations are for adults, one milligram every three to five minutes. For pediatrics, it's weight-based. As I alluded to a while ago, anaphylaxis, epi is the drug of choice. Antihistamines help, but epi is what makes the biggest difference. I've already talked about it a couple times, but just looking at the boxes, we're talking about cardiac epi here at arrest. We're talking about the one-to-one for your IM injections. So this was published last year. They looked at cardiac arrest. Randomized 8,000 people. 4,000 got epi. Right at 4,000 got placebo. And they looked at their 30-day survivability. Those that got epi did have a more favorable neurological outcome than those who got the placebo. So there may be a benefit in giving the epinephrine. For years, we've always heard there's really no benefit, but it's all we've got. 
So in a subgroup of patients, there might be a benefit in giving epinephrine, but it may not. Epi's not the first line for cardiac arrest. It's high-quality CPR. And the question we always look at is, what was their neurological outcome? When they're discharged, where are they at? Whether we're using a Los Alamos scale or something else, does this person need a lot of support or none? And unfortunately, most survivors require some type of neurological support because they have such an anoxic injury. Kind of interesting, just the kind of the diagram to look at these patients. Again, we're looking at survivals to hospital discharge. This study here showed that those who got no adrenaline had a better outcome than those who got epinephrine. Also, if you never noticed, we're the only country in the world that called epinephrine. The rest of our colleagues in Europe, Australia, it's adrenaline, and they laugh at us. It's like, you stupid Americans. It's adrenaline, noradrenaline, not epi. But you'll hear it talked about in several matters. But some studies show that there is a benefit. Some show there's not. Epi may help in some patients, but high-quality CPR is still the priority in cardiac arrest. So there's a table here kind of comparing a lot of these pressors. We've talked about several. Epi versus norepi versus phenylephrine. What's the patient need? Does the patient need just vasoactive support? And that's a great option for something like norepi or phenylephrine. Do they need cardiac support? And that may be a benefit of using dobutamine. Or may they need epinephrine? One thing we haven't talked about yet so far is milrinone. Milrinone is not like the other agents. It doesn't affect beta or alpha. Milrinone is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. So it's also a positive inotrope, very similar to butamine. So if that patient needs cardiogenic support, they're in cardiogenic shock, dibutamine is a good option. The other option is going to be milrinone. It's going to improve contractility, but through a different mechanism. By inhibiting phosphodesterase, it improves cyclic GMP levels, which is going to give us a better contraction. What drug do I need? Do I need more vasopressor support or do I need more inotropic support? Just kind of comparing these for you. Dopamine tends to be a lot of people's first line, but what are we treating? Dopamine is very dose-dependent. If I need beta effect, great, 2 to 10. But if I need vasopressor effect, I need alpha support, now I'm going to be greater than 10 mics per kilo, but I'm also going to need a lot of beta as well. So tachyarrhythmias is one of their biggest downsides of using dopamine. Lots of agents for blood pressure control. We have our beta blockers, we have our calcium channel blockers, we have those direct vasodilators. Some are going to have benefits, and they're going to give us alpha and beta effects, like Lebetalol, but some may only give us vasodilatory events like nicardipine or nitroprusside or nitroglycerin. But when I throw those in, we may get some reflex tachycardia, which could be detrimental in some patients. We may talk about some other agents like digoxin. Dig we don't use much anymore. Dig is a positive inotrope. It slows down the heart rate, but it improves calcium uptake in the cell to give us a stronger contraction. One of the benefits of digoxin is it controls the heart rate and usually leaves it around a rate of 60. So if I have a heart rate of 60, that means I probably have really good ventricular filling time so that my next contraction has a really good cardiac output. We're just going to keep that heart rate pretty much there. Downside of DIG is it has a very narrow therapeutic range. 
And one of the biggest things that increases risk of digitalis toxicity is hypokalemia. And anybody who's on DIG, where they use the also taking diuretics. And so patients on DIG and diuretics have a very tight, fine line there of love and hate. Because if they get hypokalemic, they get ditch toxic. And that causes some bad problems like hyperkalemia. So it depends on what the patient needs. Does the patient need iatropic support or do they need chronotropic support? And we'll talk about these a little bit more in the next couple of days in the boot camp as well, but just talk about some of the farm itself here. So what about that IV that extravasates? That patient has that dopamine infusion or that norepi infusion. Lots of risk of extravasation. What the current recommendations are looking at the evidence is don't pull the IV yet. Hook up a syringe to that IV. Aspirate back as much as you can. And then let's draw up some fentolamine. Fentolamine or regentine is an older drug, but it's a great alpha-beta blocker. And what we'll do is draw up some fentolamine and inject some fentolamine through that IV before we remove it. And then we can remove the IV because it's infiltrated. And then probably inject some fentolamine in the tissues around that. And that has been shown to be very effective at reversing vasoconstriction, preventing tissue necrosis, and preventing the need for anything else. So definitely, if you have that patient who's getting a peripheral vasopressor and it infiltrates, don't have them pull it yet. If you have fentolamine available, let's do that first. If you don't have fentolamine, we may apply some topical nitroglycerin. There may be some benefits from some warm soaks that's going to vasodilate, but that patient probably is going to now need to be seen with plastic surgery and may have to have reconstruction. But definitely that infiltrated vasopressor, there definitely can be a benefit with using fentolamine. So any questions about cardiovascular drugs? Lots of stuff, thinking about inotropes and vasopressors, why one versus the other. This probably is a refresher for most of us, but just thinking about why we like one agent versus the other. Individualize it to each patient because not every patient needs every drug. Maybe they just need a little inotropic support or they need just a little bit of vasopressor support. So we get our next lecture pulled up. Yes, sir. So we use usually 100 mics. So you can get what they call neosticks or we'll mix it ourselves, but we'll go with 50 to 100 mics a time. Usually our max is 400 mics. Anesthesia uses a lot. They push a lot of neosticks, but we'll do it either in pre-intubation, and actually sometimes even in CT, we've got our, the last one I had, that neurogenic shock patient, we're in the scanner, and he's starting to drop his pressure, so we give him 100 mics. Okay, that's a wrap. We encourage your comments or questions. You can reach us at support at ccme.org. And please check our library of educational content at ccme.org. Thanks for listening and bye for now.